0: great to be with you. Again, my name is Dave. It's a wonderful time to join us because this morning we're continuing our series through the book of Colossians. It's a series we've called This Changes Everything. So grab a Bible, pull it out. Um, If you forgot one, you can grab one of the pew rack in front of you. Turn to Colossians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. If you don't know the song, it's like right here in the Bible. Um, That's on page... 9.55, if you're using the Pew Bible. This morning we're going to dive into Colossians chapter 3. As you turn there, let me kind of remind you where we've been. We have looked through the entire book of Colossians. It's a letter that Paul wrote to the Colossian church from prison. And in this letter, Paul says, here's my vision, here's my hope, here's my prayer for you that Jesus would continue to grow as Lord in every part of your life, in Paul's words, that we may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. He talks about how Jesus is king of the entire universe, of the cosmos, that in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And he says, because he is king of the cosmos, he can and should be your personal king as well. Then in chapter 2, Pastor Carl spoke last week and talked about the pressures the Colossian church faced to turn away from following Jesus and, and how Paul reminds them and us of the fullness that they are offered in Christ. Paul says, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live Your lives in him. He reminds them of what Christ did for them, that he canceled the charge of our indebtedness, that he disarmed the powers and authorities. And now in chapter 3, Paul will call us to a new way of living, a life now available to us when Jesus is king, a new reality in Christ that changes everything. Verse 12, chapter 3, verse 12. Here's where, we'll start. Here's where we will start today. Paul says, therefore, because of who Christ is and all he's done and this fullness we've been offered in him. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Pause. Right off the bat, Paul offers three terms. God's chosen people, holy, dearly loved. These are all phrases straight from the Old Testament. Phrases used to describe the nation of Israel. And what Paul is saying is this He's saying, The love and grace and benefits that at one time were afforded to the nation of Israel are now available to everyone, to Greeks, to Gentiles, to you and me in Christ. He says, In Christ, you are chosen by God. You know how good it feels to be chosen to be picked? Think about this in your life for a minute. Just ponder and reflect back to times in your life when you were chosen for something, chosen for a team you tried out for, picked to play a part. Think about that moment when you found out in middle school or in high school or in college that this person you liked liked you back. Do you remember that feeling? Do you remember the butterflies? Do you remember the heart thumping? Think about that time you got the call for the second interview or when the job offer finally came through. Friends, here's the truth. To have people say, we pick you, it does something in us. It changes us. It empowers us. It affirms us. I'll never forget um, when I was a junior in college, I was chosen by my peers to be the president of our College Fellowship of Christian Athletes Ministry. It was a big Christian ministry on campus and I had been going to it for a couple of years and my friends said, Dave, you should throw your name in the hat. And I remember thinking, "Oh, me, I don't know, I'm not sure. And, and then when my peers voted for me to be the president, it was such an affirming thing in my life. It actually was the beginning, I believe, of when God started to say that maybe, just maybe, I had the gifts and calling in heart to someday be a pastor. And it all started with affirmation, with some people saying, we pick you. Now here's the point. Think about the God of heaven and earth, the king of all of creation, choosing you, picking you, saying, I want you. Paul is saying this reality, that you're one of his, that you've been chosen by God, that he is now your king, this fact empowers you to be a whole new person. It affirms you in such a way that now you can live an entirely new life. It empowers you actually to discard your old humanity. Listen to verse 5. Paul says, put to death Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. This week, I was struck by that phrase, put to death. It was actually Pastor Bethany, ironically, that pointed it out. Some of our staff, our lead staff, was together reading scripture, and we read Colossians 3, and we're talking about things that stood out to us, and she pointed out those words, put to death. And then later in the week, I was with another group of our pastoral staff and we were sharing, I was sharing some of my lingering hurts and pains and struggles in life because one of the things we do on our pastoral team here is work really hard to be honest and real and transparent with each other. And I started thinking again as I shared some of those things about that little phrase, put to death. Now friends, I believe this, there is room in the Christian experience for ongoing struggle. It's in the scriptures, it's in the Bible, there's room for thorns of the flesh that we must battle for a long, long time, sometimes maybe even for our entire lives. But Colossians is telling us that when Jesus is king, there are some things that God wants to rid you of. Verse 7, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Let me ask you this. Is there anything in your life still hanging around that God wants to put to death? Think about that for a minute. Is there anything lingering that he doesn't want to linger? What would it take? What would it really take? What would it really look like to rid yourself of some of the things that have plagued you for so long? What steps would would God, if he was really king and lord of your life, if he was really calling the shots, what maybe radical or risky or vulnerable steps would he want you to take So that you could finally experience freedom. Freedom from resentment. Freedom from pain. Freedom from bitterness. That bitterness you've been carrying towards that person for so long. What would it take for you to find freedom from unforgiveness? Or from that hurt or habit or hang up or addiction that you've carried? What if God wanted you to put it to death? What would it take? Friends, the church wants to help you. We have ministries here like... Celebrate recovery. We have mending the soul. We have grief share. We have soul care. These are all places where you can go to put some things to death that God wants to rid you of in your life. See, what if God doesn't want it to be a thorn in your flesh anymore? Paul says, your old humanity died with Jesus and has now been replaced with a new humanity. There's a new humanity, a new life, a a whole new you available in Christ. And that's a humanity that he says is marked by compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and forgiveness. And this new humanity, it transcends. This new humanity that we're in together, it transcends the ethnic and social boundary lines of our world to create, in Paul's words, verse 11... A people where there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. See, he's describing the community of the new humanity. He's describing the church, what the church should be. He does this because in the ancient world, the world was a very divided place. It was full of barriers between people. And the Greeks, the Greeks were the worst of all. The Greeks are who this letter is written to, and they were the worst. They looked down on everyone, specifically people who didn't speak Greek, who didn't share their language. In fact, the word barbarian in this passage literally means a man who says barbar. They're making fun of someone who can't speak the language. They're making fun of someone with an accent. It's like slang for folks who couldn't. This is like slang language of the ancient world. And the Scythians, by the way, were notoriously known as the lowest of the barbarians. They were more barbarian than barbarians. That was a phrase. That's a Scythian. They were little short of being a wild beast. That's straight out of Greek literature. And isn't it interesting that Paul uses here degrading slang words for groups of people? And it's as if he is saying this, not only will we, Christ followers, those in Christ, those of the new humanity, not buy into the division and exclusivity of our culture, but we will not even allow degrading, dividing language to come out of our mouths. That is who we are in Christ, the new humanity. Friends, I believe this is a prophetic word for us as Jesus followers who are living in a very divided world and culture. These words, I believe, had better challenge us not to be people of division but to be people of peace and unity across the lines of division that we find all around us and that we are constantly being tempted into This side or this side. In fact, I I was thinking this week, I was wondering, if Paul was writing specifically to us, if he addressed this letter to the church at Cedar Mill, to the Cedar (laughs) Millions, right? What would he say? Here, amongst you, 21st century American evangelical Christians, there ought not be black or white Because statistics show that Sunday morning is still one of the most racially divided times in our nation. Here amongst you, 21st century American evangelical Christians, there should be no rich or poor, old or young, male or female, Spanish-speaking or English-speaking, Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative... You see, Paul is saying, the divisions of our world are utterly stamped out by the unity we find when Jesus is king. And then Paul gets personal. He thought he was already getting personal. He's just starting. Now he gets personal and practical and even a bit subversive, and he shows In this chapter, these Colossian Christians, what this new humanity, where Jesus is king, what it might look like when applied to a first century Roman household. And before I read these verses, here's what we need to understand the Roman household was a highly authoritarian institution, so much so that the male patriarch held the power of life and death over his wife, his children, and his slaves, and Paul says, let me tell you what Jesus has to say about that, and, and here's his message, not so in a Christian household, not so in a household following Jesus. For us, the risen Jesus is Lord of the house, and this changes everything see, he goes right after one of the core and foundational institutions of the Roman Empire, the Christian household, and it's a patriarchal system, and he says, you think the husband is Lord of the house? No, Jesus is Lord of the house, and this changes everything. Here's a quote from Tim Mackey. Tim Mackey is the pastor, kind of oversees the Bible Project. Have you seen those videos online? If you haven't, check out the Bible Project. It's really great stuff, Um, and I was... Listening to Tim this week, and he said something I think really captures Paul's intent here. He's he's speaking specifically about the passage we're in. He says, Paul is walking a very fine line here. He is reshaping the most basic Roman institution around Jesus, who rules by his self-giving love. And so while he doesn't abolish the household structure outright... The exalted Messiah demands that it be transformed almost beyond the point of recognition for any Roman living in Colossae. You see, Paul is tampering with fire here. He's going after the Roman household, the Roman family, and he's saying, Jesus changes everything. So here we go. We're diving into these verses. Humor me for a minute with a disclaimer You know how when you buy an appliance, there's sometimes a disclaimer? You know, like how to use it, and if you don't use it right, it can hurt you. Sometimes there's disclaimers on television. You may have seen this for medications, you know. Oh, you got a small rash on your arm? Take this medication, and you'll have, you know, death and dying and possible drowning. I mean, it's like the symptoms are worse than the actual thing. It's like, you won't have a cold anymore, but, you know, you'll probably... Whatever. Anyway, you got it. This is, this is my version of that. Um, here's my disclaimer. Ready? One of the ways we grow is when we wrestle with Scripture together. I'm about to step into the personal and sensitive areas of how we relate to one another in our households, and as I do, please remember, this is my job to open the Bible and challenge you. In fact, if you are not challenged to ever think and act differently, and if that challenge does not from time to time sting a bit, then find a new church and a new pastor who does his or her job better than me. Disclaimer over. Okay, ready? (laughs) Here we go. You think you're ready. Verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not... Be harsh with them. Let's understand this. Let's be real clear here. Paul does not write this letter to us. Paul is not writing into a world where women work, vote, and are treated as equals. Not the case. In Jewish law, a woman was a thing. She was the possession of her husband. She had no legal rights. And she could be divorced at any time for any reason. In Greek society... Respectable married women lived lives of complete seclusion. They were not to appear in public alone. They had their own living spaces, and they often did not even join the men for meals. Men, on the other hand, husbands, enjoyed complete freedom. They went out as much as they pleased. They entered into multiple relationships outside of marriage without fear of judgment or any kind of social stigma at all, just completely accepted. Under both Jewish and Greek law, all the privileges belong to the husband and all the duties to the wife. But here, in our passage today, for the first time, Paul lays out a household code of mutual responsibility and reciprocal obligations. You see, these household codes, they were very common. They were common things in the ancient world. But Paul's is different. Paul's is two-sided. Paul's is radical and subversive. Friends, I know that it is so hard from your 21st century American perspective sitting in the pew today to believe this, but I promise you it's true. Wives, submit to your husbands was not the shocking or radical statement in these verses. That is not what captivated them, gripped them, stood out to them when this letter was read. For husbands to love their wives, and the word here is agape for love, And agape simply means this. This is the most basic definition. I'll willfully choose to do what's best for you. I'll willfully choose to do what's best for you. And so for husbands to love their wives, for these first century readers, that was scandalous and shocking. Furthermore, I want to say the word submit is not a bad word. I know it's a loaded word. I know that for some in this room, and for good reason, it has been used even by Christians in ways that were at best inappropriate and at worst simply spiritually abusive. I understand it comes with a lot of stories, but let me tell you what I believe Paul means, what I believe Paul's heart is here. Paul is not using the word submit as a power word. Like when I hear the word submit, do you know what I think of? UFC. Ultimate fighting champion. Some of you know what this is. This is like really, really, really violent and wrestling inside like an octagonal shaped ring where men and women actually get in there and pound each other to death until someone finally gives up until someone finally submits, until someone finally taps out and says, you have overpowered me. That's what I think of when I think of submit. UFC. Some in our church, even on our pastoral staff, watch UFC. Not me. But I won't name names. Here's my point, Friends. Remember, as Paul writes this passage, that his aim, his point, his purpose is to undermine a system where the husband rules in an authoritarian way by saying, the husband no longer has the power, Jesus has the power. Submission is the wife now having freedom under Jesus' lordship, his authority and control to allow her husband to be responsible for her and to care for her not because he has power, but because he yields to one who has power. And the husband is also now free, free from having to control, free to set control aside and to love his wife by putting, putting her needs above his own. You see, friends, in Christ, Paul is saying the power struggle between men and women, husbands and wives, falls away because Jesus is the one who has the power and authority in the home. And this changes everything. When Jesus is Lord, even the marriage relationship starts to look radically different. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Again, Paul is not writing into a world with child labor laws, or social workers, or child protective services. In the ancient world, children were very much under the control of their fathers. Probably the most notable example of this was the Roman patria protestas, the law of the father's power. This law stated that the father could do anything he liked with his child. He could make him work as a laborer on his farm, which I'm not really completely against, Um, but the others I don't like. He could beat him, he could chain him, he could sell him into slavery. He even had the right to condemn his child to death and then carry out the execution himself without trial or even bringing accusations against the child. So, along with the very standard and expected call for children to obey, Paul also now instructs fathers not to embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Friends, and the idea here is that in a home where Jesus is Lord, children are no longer objects. They are now people valued by God, called to maturity and respect through parenting that offers encouragement and discipline. Correction and encouragement. One of the jobs I had in high school is that I would umpire little league baseball games in the summer, my junior and senior year. It was a great gig. You got to be outside. You got to do it with one of your buddies. There were generally two of us. And you get to be around all these little kids and encourage them and, you know, call the game. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Um, But one thing that really sticks out to me is, and stuck out to me back then, It always amazed me at how openly negative and critical many parents could be of their own kids. I mean, right out in public, right out in front of all these people, they would yell at them and correct them and harshly scold them for not playing t ball right. Now, I'm now a parent, and I understand this temptation. I've watched my kids not play t-ball right. (laughs) I felt that urge to correct or scold or even embarrass them. But Paul says, fathers, parents, do not discourage your kids, discipline them, but balance it with a healthy dose of encouragement. Statistics tell us, friends, that over the long haul, children are 10 times more likely to respond to encouragement than to critique. And I am not calling here for a lack of discipline. I believe in discipline. Talk to my kids. Come to my home. But Paul is saying it must be balanced heavily with encouragement, with affirmation, with parents who will build their children up in the Lord. You see, again, Paul says parenting under the lordship of Jesus looks a whole lot different than parenting in the world. Verse 22 Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and decree their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. First off, I want to acknowledge that this is a passage that was used to justify one of, if not the most evil institution in our nation's history. And for that fact, on behalf of the church, I need to say, I'm sorry. That deeply saddens me, and I believe many of you, and it certainly breaks the heart of God. I also think this is why it is critical we understand the real message Paul is driving at in these verses, because again, this is a radically subversive passage. It may not mean what you think it means. Paul is addressing slaves here, and he addresses them in a way that would have been a profound departure from the norm of his day. In his society, slaves were not even classified in ancient law, as human beings. They did not have the right to marry. If they had a child out of wedlock, the child belonged to the master. It was normal and permitted for a master to thrash, brand, maim, or even kill a slave at his own will without question. Sometimes I think we water down the slavery of the ancient world to make ourselves feel better about the slavery of our day and what the Bible has been taught to say. Slaves, needless to say, uh, were not permitted to have any fellowship with free men. And here in these verses, once again, Paul confronts the established social order. And you'll notice that he doesn't do it, and this is what maybe it troubles some of you, he does not do this by outright condemning slavery. Here's what he does. He challenges the very framework upon which slavery is built. He goes underneath the issue to the deeper issues. One author I read this week stated, Paul protesting against the institution of slavery would have been, a, would have been about as useful as a modern preacher condemning the internal combustion engine. That is to say, it would have been useless. So instead... Paul drives home the truth that if adopted will eventually transform not just the institution of slavery, not just marriages, not just parenting, but every single human relationship in the history of the world. Here's another way to say this. Paul is not here affirming patriarchy or slavery. He's talking about what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in a society that embraces evil and ungodly practices. Do you think that happens in our world? You see, friends, there's something subversive here. Paul is saying Live this way. Understand that Jesus is Lord of the entire household. And when you start to do that, it will transform all your relationships. And eventually, Paul knows this will completely undermine the practices of authoritarian patriarchy and slavery. This is just brilliant, brilliant writing. Finally, right in the middle of this chapter, Paul tells us how. How we can become people who put to death the old life. How we can become people who are clothed in compassion and kindness and grace and mercy. The new life. How we can become people whose relationships are transformed so that they reflect the lordship of Jesus Christ. How do we become this this new humanity, these new people that is, is offered to us in Christ? Here's what he says. Here's the how. Verse 15 There's a lot in there I wish we had in another 40 minutes. Do we? There's a lot in there. We'll come back to it. But there's three things I want you to see today. Three things that empower us to be the kind of people Paul has been calling us to be throughout the entire rest of the chapter. Here's the first one. He says, let the peace of Christ rule. Let the peace of Christ rule rule. Now the word rule in Greek is the word for umpire. Like Make the final call. Call the shots, right? And so Paul is saying, let the peace of Christ be the umpire in your heart, be the umpire in your life. In other words, as you make decisions in this life, as you go about your life day to day about what to say and how to act and how to respond to this person or that person or to this situation or that situation, Paul says, don't just do what feels best in the moment. Don't just do what you think you ought to do. No, he says, go with whatever will give you peace, the peace of Christ. Think about your thoughts, your attitudes, your actions, your words, and think about if you say them, will they result in the peace of Christ in your soul? If so, go with those. If not, choose another option. Second, Paul says, so that's let the peace of Christ rule in your life. Second, Paul says, let the message of Christ dwell. Now, the word dwell, I love this word because it really just means to be at home. Let the word of Christ be at home. Let the word of Christ be real comfortable in your midst. Let the message of Christ be comfortable, right? In my house, we have um, outfits that we call our comfy clothes. Do you guys have comfy clothes? Some people in this room even have a song for their comfy clothes. Um, I won't sing it because I'm going to spare you that, but it's fun. And we've adopted it in our family, too. And the whole idea is that after you've been gone for a long day or you've been at church all morning and you've been wearing other clothes, you go home and then you get to put on your comfy clothes, baby. And it's fun to put on some sweatpants. An elastic waistband is so good, right? I mean, and so, I mean, you just feel home. You feel cozy. You're just like right in there. And what Paul is saying is that's how the message of Christ, that's how the word of God should feel in your heart and in your life. Right at home in you. Paul's saying keep God's word marinating inside of you, directing you and guiding your attitudes and actions and relationships. Let the message of Christ dwell in you. So, let the peace of Christ rule. Let the message of Christ dwell. And lastly, let the name of Christ drive. He says, and whatsoever you do, whether in word or deed, whether like you're saying it or doing it, and that's Paul's way of kind of saying like in every part of your life, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Friends, when someone's name is on something, they endorse it, don't they? If you put my name on something, that's a way of saying, like, Dave agrees with this. Dave is for this. Dave likes this. Dave affirms this. This represents Dave well, right? You put your name on things that you would endorse. Same for Jesus. This is why we pray in Jesus' name. We've talked about this before. When we pray in Jesus' name, this is us saying, God, you take and receive and make happen whatever in my prayer Jesus would put his name on. If Jesus would endorse it, then you receive it as my prayer. If Jesus wouldn't endorse it, if it's not his will, if it's not his ways, then you just discard it, God. And so we pray in Jesus' name to say, Lord, not our will, but your will, his will, whatever he would endorse. And here Paul is simply saying, as you live your life, as you make decisions and speak words, and as you go out and you relate to other people, constantly ask yourself this question, would Jesus want his name on this? Would he want his name on me right now? Would he want his name on my attitude today? Would he want his name on this statement I'm about to make? Would he want his name on this email I'm about to type and send? But Jesus put his name on it. But Jesus put his name on this behavior, on this decision, on this heart posture. You see, Paul says, that's a huge question. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. If Jesus wouldn't put his name on it, then you'd better change it to something he would put his name on. You see, what Paul is truly after in this entire section is a very important reminder That none of us can live a life pleasing to the Lord by our own power and our own strength. Paul is saying, if you want to live this new life, if you want to discard the old humanity and put on the new humanity offered to you in Jesus, then you're going to need him to rule and dwell and drive because you can't do it on your own. See, that is the core truth of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Not to pull our bootstraps up and to try real hard to be good, moral people in this world. Fooey to that. I could use a different word. We come here and we gather and we come to these tables to make this declaration God, we need you. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your power. We need you to rule and dwell and drive in us so that we can be the new people that you long for us to be. It is by your power and strength and grace and mercy, not by our own effort. And so we come to these tables to say, God, keep doing the work that you need to do in me. Keep helping me see the places where I'm doing it on my own. God, I come to this table to say, Jesus, it's your death and resurrection that makes me right before the Father. It's your death and resurrection, your amazing grace and mercy that empowers and fuels me. It's a way of saying, by this bread and by this cup, God, I want you to have more of me as I have you have more of me. And so this morning, I just want to invite you to do this. There's a lot in that passage. There's a lot of places I think God wants to challenge us and change us and reshape us. And so I'm just going to ask you, where is the Holy Spirit speaking to you today? Where is he affirming you? Where is he challenging you? Where is he speaking to you, calling you? Pay attention to that. If there were places in the message this morning where the hairs on the back of your neck went up or you thought, for any reason, pay attention to that. Pay attention to that. Talk to God about that. And then come to the table And remember whose you are. A child of God, bought with the life and blood of his one and only son, redeemed and reconciled to your father through him. So I'm gonna pray and the worship team's gonna come and take the elements back to your seat and you can receive them on your own when you're ready. Father, this morning we say you are great and good and majestic and mighty. Lord, I confess that there are there were so many things this week in that chapter that deserve more attention, more time, more thought, more pondering. So God asks that you would, by your grace and mercy, bring us back to those places that we need to focus. As individuals, Lord, and as a church, bring us back to those places where you want to do some reshaping and some tweaking and some transforming in us. But I do pray, Lord, that as a church, your lordship and kingship, that the fact that we have everything in you would drive all we are and everything we do. May we be radically committed to that, Lord. May we be so committed to that that even when it hurts, we will pursue you. Father, all these things we pray in your son's name and say, if you would endorse it, may it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.